Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. For just over the last 50 years, humans have traveled for the first time into outer space. The emotional impact of leaving and returning to Earth is an experience only a very few have had. I confess that the notion of space flight intrigues me. So we are quite pleased to have Dr. Ronald Mumaw, flight surgeon, psychiatrist at NASA at the Johnson Space Center, to explain some of the challenges and lessons we have learned about the emotional aspects of humans in outer space. Sir, thank you so much for being here. It is my pleasure. One of the first thoughts about being in space is that they are truly limited in so many ways. Is there a sense of claustrophobia? After all, one just can't leave. I'd like your thoughts about that. Confined spaces for our astronauts are usually pre-selected before they become an astronaut. Most of them have experience scuba diving or doing extreme environments. So that's part of the qualification prior to selection. And then, of course, their training includes a lot of underwater training because we have a a live full-scale model of the International Space Station underwater. So they take the spacesuits down underwater and experience a sense of weightlessness because of the buoyancy. And so before they ever get anywhere, they're experiencing the tight confines of a spacesuit. There are moles camps where they go for caving and things like that. So they really are given as much of a preliminary sense of what it would be like up there before they actually get there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What have we learned about the fact that people are living without gravity for a very long time? How does that affect our physiologies, our bodies, and our psychologies? Zero gravity is fascinating because from a psychological standpoint, let's talk about that first. First, we're used to living in a planar environment. We've got a ceiling and a floor and walls. And when we let go of something, it falls to the floor. When you take a person and you put them in a zero-gravity environment, all of a sudden your mind has to wrap itself around the fact that there is no ceiling or floor. Every inch of the inside of the space station is usable because you literally float right to it. And so instead of living in a planar environment, you've got a 300, more than a 360, you've got actually a spherical utilized environment where you can literally Velcro a wrench to a wall. And as you turn, your complete orientation will change in all spheres. And so when you reach your hand out to get your wrench, it's not there. (laughs) You have just changed several degrees and the wrench may be behind your head. And so when people get into those environments, I liken it to, for us earthbound creatures, driving on the left-hand side of the road. When we first get into a car and we go to some country where you're driving on the left, your mind has to wrap itself around the fact that how to drive and how to turn and how to conduct yourself just with that simple change. Now, if you take the the impact of that one simple change in our reference and change it to 360 degrees, you can see that the human mind, in order to wrap itself around that, takes some time. Usually it takes about six weeks. It's not Star Trek. What does it do to the inner ear not to feel the sense of gravity? Do we have any sense of that? Well, there is some initially when they go up, there will be an adaption period anywhere from a day to three days where nausea is oftentimes an issue. And that adapts very rapidly. That's 24, 72 hours possibly. The more important thing that we've discovered is that there's a fluid shift because you no longer have an orthostatic condition. The fluid shifts instead of being down, it shifts up. 
And so it increases the, the fluid dynamics of the brain. And what we're seeing now is some changes, like the back of the eyeball, where it flattens because of pressure from intracranial pressure, and it changes eyesight. And the other effects of that strange environment on the mind are really, it's difficult to say what the overall change would be if a person stayed in that environment for an extremely long period of time, like a three-year mission you know, to Mars and back. What about the fact that the bones may weaken? We have seen where the astronauts run around or various other exercises. Do the bones soften because we don't really need the bones the way that we need them here on Earth? It used to be a significant problem. So people were looking for all different types of countermeasures. What they found is actually a very simple countermeasure. It's exercise. And so we have treadmills where people are literally bungee cord strapped down to a treadmill. We have our equivalent of free weights because in a space environment, obviously, <laughs> weights don't have weight. We have a hydraulic, a pneumatic system of lifting weights. What's been found is that two hours worth of training every day, we don't have the bone loss. That's actually been mitigated. And we don't have the fatigue. The original astronauts that came back came back so weak. They had to be carried around during the first several days that they were back. Our guys come back, and they can literally crawl out of a capsule. Uh, I just spoke with one last week, and um, he had flown once before, and he's on the new what we call sprint protocol, which is shorter duration and more, uh, more intensity. And he came back in much better shape than he left the planet. Interesting. The medical requirements for exercise continue regardless of where we are. What about the psychological sense that they are so reliant on each other and on ground control? It's not, again, like they can take control of things. They are completely isolated and completely reliant. Have you seen this to be much of an emotional problem in the groups? That really has not been a problem. Part of it is the selection. We started in selection with over 6,000 applicants, and we ended up this time with eight. And what we do is we're looking for people that have the right psychological structure to be not only the right stuff, but also to be compatible. They have to have a high compatibility component. And so the selection process really kind of brings that to the forefront in the very beginning. The astronauts you know, they have histories of doing extreme work, oftentimes isolated. Prior to even getting selected, we work on that during the training periods before they're ever actually selected as an astronaut, where they're still an astronaut candidate. The other part of it is, is that they're really not isolated now. The communication is phenomenal. We have an internet protocol phone, an IP phone, that they can literally pick it up and they can call any member on the planet and talk to someone, literally 24 hours a day. Some of these guys will talk to their wives or their husbands three times a day, pick up the phone and talk to them. And there's live email now so that they can literally email back and forth in real time. That's actually new during the past 12 months. There are all types of communications, and we have for, I work for behavioral health and performance, and we have a whole team of people that make sure that the families have quality communication with the astronauts. 
they may have small children. And so using things like an iPad, a young child, they can take the iPad and they can show mom or dad everything in their backyard and their pet and they can show them it. It's real time. While they're showing that to the astronaut, the astronaut is on the screen talking to them. So these are countermeasures that mitigate a lot of the effect of isolation. They don't feel isolated. What about the sleep-wake cycle? They go around the Earth, and I think it's, what, every 45 minutes they go to a sunrise, to a sunset? How do you manage to keep them at least reasonably on a normalized sleep-wake cycle? That is something that I'm directly involved in, and the issue of circadian dyssynchrony. How do we manage that? Well, right now, it's all scheduling. We schedule their days and their nights, despite wherever they are in solar exposure. What we've found is that they sleep about one hour less while they're in orbit than they do on the planet. They require less sleep. Do we know why? No, we do not know why. There are all kinds of theories, and one of them is that there is no disturbance because of weight. When you and I lay down in our bed at night, we experience pressure of our weight of our body on our bed, and so we constantly move. When they're in space, they have none of that. So one of the possibilities is that they actually achieve a deeper, more quality sleep because they don't have that phenomenon. And when you talk to them, some of them like, it's very interesting, some of them like to actually float free in their sleep. Others like to have the sense of being held down and will actually Velcro their sleeping bag to the wall so that they get the sense of being held more Earth-like. And everybody is different. I just spoke with one person who has a very odd angle inside his sleep compartment that he has found that he kind of scrunches himself into. And when he gets into that position, he falls asleep immediately. Do they have a normal dream cycle? They do. And it doesn't seem to be anything unusual. If they don't dream on Earth, they don't seem to dream up there. And they're exposed to an incredibly exciting environment. They can look out the cupola, which is a set of windows, and just view the Earth as it whips past them at 17,500 miles an hour. And you would think that that would influence their sleep, but it doesn't seem to. It seems that they just normalize it. It's fascinating. Now, the other component to sleep cycles that's very important are the light and dark and the exposure to blue light but we're changing the lighting system on the ISS that it can be controllable to give different wavelengths of light. And the idea is that we'll enhance the blue end of the spectrum, 460 to 490 wavelengths, will be enhanced in the mornings, and that will stimulate melanopsin, which then stops the production of melatonin. And so they are more alert and more awake. And then it shifts to a full-spectrum light so that they get true color for experiments and testing and all of that. And then two hours before they go to bed, we want to be able to shift it over to the warmer spectrum, the longer wavelengths, and completely get away from the short spectrum, the blues and greens. And in doing so, then that allows the body to start producing the melatonin that it needs in order to initiate and to give a person more quality sleep. Do they all sleep at the same time or roughly at the same time? Yeah, roughly. That's another That's an interesting psychological component. What happens when you have a short sleeper and a long sleeper? We have an astronaut that sleeps five hours at night, no matter where he is, and that's it. That's all he needs. And then we've got others that need eight. I think one that I knew needed eight and a half to reach full quality sleep. And it sets up an interesting paradigm for the team in that the long sleeper feels guilty because they're not up working. 
But if they are upworking, then they lose their efficiency. So it becomes a, a, a vicious cycle. So from a team building standpoint, the question is, do you put all, all short sleepers together and long sleepers together? or And how do you get the team to handle that? So some of them, actually the short sleepers would get up and do certain types of maintenance and things while the other people slept. They just accepted the fact that they were going to be doing a few more hours worth of work than their comrades. Is there any sense amongst them a fear, perhaps, if one of them were to get really sick? They obviously can't just go to an emergency room. How do you prepare them for that? They have a lot of training. Just think about trying to do chest compressions in zero gravity. They actually train on how to put a person, uh, Velcro them to a board, and then they have to be literally what we would think upside down, but they could be right side up and the person could be on the ceiling. They have to use their leg in order to do chest compression because they have to maintain contact with the chest wall with their arms and they have to have their feet against something in order to give them pressure. So those are unusual types of training. But they also do their own ophthalmologic evaluations and they do their own blood draws. They have a lot of training. Some of the fellows are now going into a local hospital to see and to participate in acute trauma. We have a few physicians that are astronauts. For the ISS, if someone really became sick, they would be, it would be a deorbit, and we could have a person back on the ground literally in one day. But there the problem is, depending on what the injury would be or the condition, how is that going to take the real violent return from space that you experience in a Soyuz capsule? There are periods of time when it is just very, it's a very violent fall, and they hit the ground at, oh, I think it's like 65 miles an hour. So if you had some type of a traumatic injury or a brain uh, closed head trauma or something, that would be very difficult. Do all of the astronauts basically work the equivalent of an eight-hour day? Do you try to normalize it so they have a couple hours maybe at the end that they can go read or communicate? How much is their day scheduled? They have a master schedule. It's then marked with things that have specific times that something has to be done because of timing of an experiment or because of communication with the ground. You don't want to have your subject matter expert up at 3 o'clock in the morning because that's you know, it correlates with the time of, an, of something in space. So these schedules, some of them have very rigid boundaries. Others are marked essentially so that the astronaut can move them around. It's kind of like their exercise periods. They can do them in the morning. They can do them in the afternoon. They just have to get the right amount of exercise in. And so that part of the schedule can float. But we do not want them overworking. It's an environment where they could very easily. And, and it has happened in the past. They just work into their pre-sleep period, which is not, not good. We really want to make sure that they honor the pre-sleep period and that they get to bed and that they're getting their rest. I would assume also because they're just human beings that at times they do get overtired or they don't feel good. And there are elements of tension that may exist between them just because they're, they're human. Do they handle it themselves or do you have to get on the phone with them, so to speak, and help them work through it? You know, the issue of conflicts always arises, but it's really been minimal for us. The ISS is a very large, the interior space is probably that of a 747. And if we have three and um, maybe six people there, and the most that you'll have is nine for a short period of time, they can literally work all day on projects and not even see each other. 
So it's not like you're thinking of people in a, uh, a small, confined, underwater vessel, you know, a small submarine or something. This is actually a very large, very spacious vehicle. It's interesting because quite often I'll see the feeds to the televisions from NASA and the astronauts, of course, I recognize that they're on television at that point in time, but they're, they seem to be enjoying themselves so much. And then when we get a tour of it, I am intrigued by the fact that you say it's as big as a 47. I, I never imagined that. I never got that, that sense. But it's in pods. It's in modules. So it's not like a big open space. And they, they have fun. Like they have the record of who can go from one end of it to the other end the fastest and things like that. Uh, recently, I was talking to someone that had the record and he was going to beat his own record and came up on another flight and was going to take the same path that he was taking before. And somebody had moved the handle that you would grasp in order to change direction from going from one module, say, at a 90 degree angle into another. And they had changed the handles and came zipping through, <laughs> expecting to get the handle, and it wasn't there. <laughs> so evidently it was a little bit of a crash, but, you know, people are having fun. As we get more and more experience with people in outer space, are we beginning to see, with any degree of predictability, psychological complications from prolonged space flight to prepare them and I remember watching our first landing on the moon and a school teacher came up to me and said, it must be incredible, absolutely incredible for the astronaut when they get back here to say, wow, can you imagine where I just was at? And you read about spiritual changes and psychological changes. Is there any sense of predictability in how these people change from being someplace that virtually only a tiny fraction of the people who have ever lived have experienced? You know, there are two components here. One is that it, it is anticlimactic. When they return, it's like that's something that they've wanted all of their life and they've trained and they've trained for years just to become an astronaut. And then they train for two very difficult years right before they fly. And then they fly and they come back and it's like, oh, <laughs> now who am I? Now where's my focus? That's a fascinating thing to work with. And it's different if they know that they're in line to fly again than if they knew that that was their last flight. So we do see expected complications like that. You would think coming back to Earth would be almost a bizarre reorientation, and it actually is not. It's more as though it is so completely different being in zero gravity and working inside the space station that when you come back, it's almost like it was a different world because it was. Fascinating. The psychiatric elements here intrigue me, and as I said at the beginning, many of my colleagues are also fascinated about this because we never get to speak to astronauts, and we really don't know the insides and the, the subtleties and the nuances of the good work that you're doing. Dr. Ronald Mumau is a flight surgeon and psychiatrist at the Johnson Space Center. He has taken us on a tour of some very interesting aspects of what it's like for the astronauts. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. It is my pleasure.